Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. Scripture reading this morning is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You can find it on page 968 in your Pew Bible if you would uh, turn there with me. I'll be reading. Um, Verses 1 through 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove in vain in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. The word of the Lord. Let's seek God's grace as we come to his word. Let us pray. Lord, we we are still given to so much idolatry here and there. The idolatry lurks in our hearts. And our growth in grace is really a discovery of what remains in our hearts that is not faithful to you. Lord, we know this will continue to the day of Christ Jesus. The good work you've begun in us, you will complete until the day of Christ Jesus. So search out, Lord, our idols. Search out our allegiances, our compromises. Search out, Lord, where our affections have gone to the wrong place, where we are seeking life from something other than you, and where we are grasping instead of spending ourselves because we're yet not believing you. Lord, all of us need your grace. All of us need to grow in spending ourselves more freely to those closest to us, to our neighbor, to people at work, to extended family, to a lost world, uh, to give ourselves in so many ways. And particularly we come thinking about the possessions you've given us, Lord, and how we Use these for your glory and our joy. Bless us. Bless us, Lord, that we will be like you and that we will bring honor to you 
and that we will have the deepest joy that human beings can have living under your care and spending ourselves for others. Bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Kids, we have this kind of odd title today, laughing all the way to the offering plate, okay? And you may not know what this refers to, but uh, if, say, I was buying a house, let's say I was going to spend $200,000 for this house, and I really didn't inspect the house much, and uh, the house... We'll just say in this illustration, the house wasn't inspected by anybody much, but I trusted this guy a lot. I thought he was a good guy, and he would uh, do this, uh, be faithful to me in this transaction. So he didn't tell me, though, that he knows there's a sinkhole uh, underneath the backyard and that the thing's growing. And sure enough, three months after I buy the house, the house falls into the hole. It's not worth a whole lot at that point. Um, so $200,000 down the drain. I have, I have nothing for my 200 dollars just, just like you took the $200,000 and put a match to it. It's gone. But you might say of that fella, he was laughing all the way to the bank. Okay? That means he was really happy about it because he had a worthless piece of property, a worthless house, and he got $200,000 for nothing. He was laughing all the way to the bank. So it's a way to say how happy he was to get all of this money. Anytime anybody comes into money kind of unexpectedly or, or in a way that they couldn't have imagined, then, gosh, they're so happy they're laughing all the way to the bank. And so there's a word here when he says uh, God loves a cheerful giver. In the original Greek, uh, as you may have heard before, it's hilaros. It's, it's where we get the word hilarious. Uh, or exhilarated even. And so it says that the kind of giver God likes is a hilarious one. In a sense, somebody that's laughing all the way to the offering plate. So happy to get to give. Exhilarated. Dancing almost. Yay! I get to give. Okay? That's the basic thrust of this passage. There is joy in true giving, and true giving always, always expresses itself in this way. And the point we're going to make is that God loves this kind of giving because that's how God gives. That's who God is. And as we'll point out, it's who God has been for eternity. The joyful giving God, even within the Trinity itself. Now, before we get to that subject of joy, I want to talk a little bit about preparation because Paul talks a lot about it in these first five verses. In fact, you may read it and think, boy, he's spending a lot of time about how he wants to make sure that the Corinthians have this gift prepared. As you recall, they're they're collecting among the Gentile churches in the Mediterranean basin. They're, They're collecting gifts for the poor in Jerusalem. And let's just say, if you're unfamiliar with the geography, when you talk about Macedonia, let's call that northern Greece, modern northern Greece, and Achaia, or Corinth, uh, that's southern Greece. So, as Paul's writing here to those in southern Greece, he says, now I've been bragging, I've been boasting about your 
willingness, your enthusiasm, eagerness is the word he talks about here. I've been telling the guys up here in northern Greece, the uh, Macedonians, in fact, I'm telling them even now, boasting about how for a year you've been eager, enthusiastic about this. But Paul knew that whatever, whether it was organization or administration or they just didn't follow through yet, that the, the gift wasn't ready yet. So he was sending a team down ahead of time to help make sure it was done so that when everybody got there, they wouldn't be scrambling around, oh yeah, let's, and in fact, he says there in verse five, so that it would be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. In other words, he said, we need, you need to prove out and show that your desire and your eagerness is really there because if it is, you will organize yourself, you will prepare, you will do take all the steps necessary to have the gift ready. And the point was, he didn't want them to be scrambling around as though, uh-oh, they're here, now we have to give something. You know, As though it's, well, we wouldn't have done it, but now they've showed up. Shoot, you know, <laughs> now we've got to give. Let's, let's go, okay, let's pull it together. Let's get something for these people. Rather, the eagerness that would show itself in we've, we've, uh, we've been eager, we've disciplined ourselves, we've organized ourselves, we've taken the steps. Here's the gift, it's ready to go. Now, I thought it would be good for us to talk about this for a little bit because we want to combine those two ideas of joy and preparedness, or maybe joy and discipline, so that your joy and your eagerness in Christ spills over into practical things like you set a budget. You decide on what you're going to spend and not going to spend so that you plan and prepare yourself week after week or month after month or quarter after quarter, however you're going to do it, that you will be able and prepared to give gifts to God's people and to the kingdom of God's church, the ongoing ministry of God's word. So these aren't two different things, but joy, true joy, expresses itself in a way that we discipline ourselves and prepare ourselves so that we really are able to give. Because sometimes people will say, well, I'm really eager to and I'm all about giving, but their finances are such a shambles that they just never have anything left. And they kind of think, well, if if I ever have anything left, I'm going to give because I really want to give. I mean, I'm eager to give. I just think it's the greatest thing to give. I just never have anything at the end of the month, you know. Of course, it's, it's, it's really a way Paul's expressing here that would show that the eagerness really isn't there. Not true eagerness. Not true eagerness that follows through and prepares something so that it is, is truly happening. And so, <clears throat> careless spending without thought to what you're giving or if you'll be able to give, or how it will affect your giving, is not joyful giving. Now repeat that. Spending carelessly without thought of what you're giving, if you're going to be able to give, how it will affect your giving in any way, this is not joyful giving. Joy figures it out. Okay? Joy works at it and makes it happen. Because joy, it wants to spend itself in all that it has for the glory of God, for the people of God. Now, a question always comes up, well, how much? What, what do I give? How do I even measure 
the generosity that I'm supposed to have. Let me talk about that just a little bit. Of course, the 10%, the tithe comes up. And, and for good reason. When you look in the Old Testament, you see the tithe everywhere. Not only in the law of Moses, the basic law of the Old Testament, but even before Moses, you see Abraham giving a 10%, a tithe to the priest Melchizedek. And as studies show, it was ancient. In every society, there was the idea of the tenth. So it really wasn't even unique to uh, the Bible or the people of, of uh, God's, God's people, I'm sorry. And even when a king is being sought after by uh, Israel, a king like the nations they wanted, they were warned uh, by Samuel, he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take a tenth of your flocks. You will be his slaves. So it was almost understood that when he taxes you, he's going to tax a tenth. Everything was in terms of a tenth. Now, what makes it a bit complicated when you start to look at the specifics of the law is that the tenth was, in, a, in addition to the tenth every year, there was every third year another tenth that was given to the Levites in particular. And then the Levites were to tie the tenth of that to give to the priests and they were to tie the tenth themselves, etc. So you've got the tenth every year and then if you average it out, there's like a three and one third because you give every three years another tenth. All right, more complication. When it starts listing the things that you might give in Deuteronomy 12, verse 6, it says you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution, your vow offerings, free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and flock. What's that percentage? And you add all that up. Plus the Levite, that, that every three-year tithe was a Levite slash poor tithe. Or the mention in Nehemiah 12, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes. So it almost seems like the tenth is a starting point in a way in the Old Testament. But let me just make it more complicated, okay? Um, so the general idea of the tenth goes back to Abraham. You see it all the way in the last book of the Bible in Malachi, bring all the tithe into the storehouse. Seems like end of story. But then... The main purpose of the regular tithe seems to be that you bring or if it's too far, you sell, get, bring the money and then buy the food when you get there. But it's mainly for your feasting in the presence of God at the regular feasts. So you think, well, wait a minute. How many, how much feasting do we do in this church? You know, we, it's really not that big a part. We, we do have some fellowship suppers and some of your money goes into that. Maybe that'd be an argument for doing it more, you know, but you just, what I'm trying to drive at is a very different situation. And the tithe was probably more than a tenth in all. Plus, they used it in very particular ways for a particular kind of worship that was going on. In fact, that you would, it says, when you, if you're far away, you, you uh, sell it, you bring your money, and then you come and buy whatever you want to eat or drink. If you want to buy wine or strong drink or whatever food and feast before the Lord. 
And I'm thinking, so how do I apply that, <laughs> you know? And how is that a motivation for you to give when that was the primary purpose of their giving? Well, I think in a, a parallel would be that we are giving to support our worship and our ministry. And in the New Testament, it talks about those who hear the word will uh, supply the need for those who are teaching the word in Galatians uh, 6 and 1 Corinthians 9. So there's that aspect. And then there's the aspect of meeting the needs of God, uh, of the poor. And then there's the aspect of extending the kingdom uh, throughout the world. So maintaining our worship and our fellowship, extending Christ's kingdom, meeting the needs of, of broken people, all of these things uh, are our call in terms of giving ourselves away and giving our possessions. So, you know... You'll see it debated back and forth in the literature, and scholars may go back and forth as saying it is the tenth, or no, there's really no mention of the tenth in the New Testament. And it's interesting in these two chapters, some of the most devoted chapters, probably the two, uh, the longest section on giving in the New Testament, Paul never mentions the tenth. Now, you might be thinking, man, ten percent would be a lot for me. But the feel that I have is that 10% is kind of a benchmark. It's something maybe to think about, something to shoot for, especially in a society where we have way more excess money than they did in their society. We have a lot more uh, available uh, money to do things than almost any society ever in history, that we should at least be thinking, if the general idea has always been the tent, then maybe I should kind of start with that figure and work up to that figure and beyond that figure. However, uh, the primary thing that he points to is just the lavish heart that gives itself away. He, he points to the Macedonians early in chapter 8, as we talked about, who themselves are poverty-stricken, and yet they're still giving away their money. Or Jesus points out in Luke 21, all of these people that were giving large donations into the treasury, and he stops them and says, did you see that woman? And of course, they didn't see the woman. They didn't notice what he's talking about. Did you see that woman, Jesus says? What, what, what? All those people were giving these huge amounts. She put in two pennies. It was all she had. Now, when you see Jesus spending his life completely for our sake, and you, and you, get, you connect the dots and realize, hey, that's the love of God. God, in his love, he spends himself lavishly. He gives himself away freely. In that sense, he looks for the way that he can give everything to us, and he did it through his son. Then Jesus notices when people in love and passion spend themselves, he notices it. These guys were given huge chunks, but it was just extra stuff. She gave away her necessity. And that's the thing about the Macedonians that is brought before the Corinthians. They were poverty-stricken and still joyfully they begged for the opportunity to give themselves away. And then he underscores it with what we dealt with the next uh, time we studied this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He impoverished himself for us. So rather than the 10% 
maybe we say, well, whatever it was, it, it's not specifically enforced as the thing that we can mark off and say, well, I'm doing my 10%. It's more of how is God calling me to organize and direct my whole life so that I'm not devoted to materialism. I'm not devoted to this world, but I'm devoted to Christ. And it doesn't mean, I, I, I disagree with anyone that would say, it means that we can only give, uh, only spend it on necessities. There are even a well-known book that, uh, author that I greatly respect that would say that, um, and that, that we are part of a battleship. We're part of a battleship uh, and that's what missions is. We're not a cruise ship. We're a battleship. And on a cruise ship, you spend money lavishly. On a battleship, it's just necessities because we're getting the gospel to the world. And that, that has a pull on you to say you only spend money on necessities. But I think, okay, well, then we can't have musicians. We can't have artists. We can't have craftsmen. We can't have anything. You know, it's like... We probably all need to move out and find some hovel somewhere to live in. If you want to just talk necessity, let's have tents, you know, whatever. If you really follow that through, you see. So I think that's not wise. We need to build a godly culture that enjoys all the gifts of, of a culture in it. And, and we, we want to proclaim the fullness of life under God in His creation and culture. But in the context of that, we must begin asking this question... How am I reflecting the death of Jesus Christ? How am I reflecting in my life something that looks like Jesus Christ laying down his life? What would that look like in my finances to reflect his beauty and to do it with the same joy that he did it for me? That's a serious question. And that's where the New Testament kind of grows us up into adults talks about the childhood of the Old Testament where everything's very specific and exact. You do this and this. And now you're kind of thrown out there and said, keep your eyes on Christ. And you ask the hard question. And you have that joy and passion for Jesus Christ. Let that take you where it will. That's the sense you get in this passage. And, of course, which brings us to that joy because he he says here in verse 7... Uh, this is what God loves. He loves the hilarious giver. He loves the joyful giver. That's what he wants more than anything else. Now, you could say, well, if, if he wants a joyful giver, then I better not give until I'm joyful. You know, <laughs> that's convenient. So you think, you think then that God would like a sorrowful, you would sorrowfully hold on to your money. Is that what he, you think is the alternative? Like, well, I'm, I'm not joyful, so I'm going to sorrowfully, with pain, hold my money because I don't want to give it away. Maybe that will please God? Is that the alternative? No, of course not. It's like to ask the question, where are the idols in my heart? Or where's my lack of trust in God? Where's my covetousness lurking? What's preventing me from... My giving to in some way reflect the beauty of Christ's gift to me. <clears throat> so, 
uh, it's important for us to see some of the things Paul says here uh, about the joy. We, we've seen some about preparation, but what about joy? Because there will be no true preparation without this joy. What's interesting when he says in verse 5, that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an, exact, an exaction, like it's being forced out of you. But here's an instructive thing. This word exaction really is the word for greed or covetousness. And the idea is, you know, this it's really a false thing like taking candy from a baby because most babies I've seen hold on to their candy very tightly, you know, and, and, and you have to peel their little fingers back and then they're screaming at you so loud you want to, okay, have it, you know. That's the way a baby holds on to candy. And that's the way, he's, it's what he's talking about here, that it needs to manifest itself as something you freely, happily gave, not as though you were clenching it and your covetousness was guiding you. And that made me think as I studied this, wow, that's amazing. Right here to ask the question, wait a minute, am I just being covetous? Am I just covetous? I want this more than I would want somebody else to have it, even though they, I'm told to give my wealth away for the benefit of others. But no, I'm saying, no, I covet it. I want it for me. That is, that's strong. Grasping, greediness is, is the word here. The gift is not to be marred by covetousness. Then one commentary had this quote from Seneca, who's a pagan philosopher. This pagan philosopher says, No gratitude is felt for a benefit when it is lingered long in the hands of him who gives it. You know, like you're going to give it and you're like, I don't know. I don't know. And of course, by then the guy says, please don't give it because it's no benefit to me. It is no joy to me. It's, it's, if it's grudgingly given and you hold on to it a long time, he says, when the giver has seemed sorry to let it go and has given it with the air of one who's robbing himself. <laughs> I just stole this from myself. Yeah. You know. And that's the way we feel sometimes. You know, I just rob myself to give to these people. That's not fair. I could have had that myself. I just robbed me, you know. That's how we feel. That's what covetousness does, though. And here, this, again, pagan philosopher, he says the chief pleasure of it comes from the intention of the bestower. We've said this before, that the joy that someone has is experiencing the happiness of the person who gives it. That's godlike. And he says it's as though he's not willingly given it, but he's failed to withstand the effort to extract it. I love that. It's like I couldn't withstand the effort to pull it out of me and it just got taken away from me, you know, for whatever reason. I was trying to please somebody. I wanted to impress somebody. Uh, everybody else is doing it, so i got to go along. They're going to check my giving record at the end of the year. That'll be embarrassing. Whatever it is, you know, it just got extracted from me rather than I freely, happily gave it. So we need to ask the, word, uh, ask the question, in my joy, is there a problem because of covetousness? And then he has another interesting word there in verse, uh, verse 7. Each one must give as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly. And the word reluctantly there is the word lupe, which means pain. Okay? 
grief, sorrow. Not to give it with grief or sorrow or pain, which is, we've already kind of talked about that. But that's the same word. Here's the verb form in First Thessalonians. You've heard this before. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, who've died, so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Or the sorrow of Christ when he was in the garden. Or Ephesians 4, grieving the Holy Spirit. So there's this idea of pain in giving instead of joy in giving. Sorrow in giving rather than a happiness in giving. And it's likely if you're not giving to God's people, to God's church, and or you're giving just in a miserly way, just... You know, haphazardly, a buck here, five dollars there, ten dollars, just, and in the end, it's hardly anything, really. But you think, well, I gave something. Then that's probably not joyful giving either. Joyful giving, uh, manifests it in a, in an enthusiasm. But the, the pain and the grief and the sorrow shows itself in, I just don't give that much. You know, cause, cause it would pain me to do that. I don't even want to think about it. I'm sure not going to plan for it. I'm not going to alter my lifestyle for it. That would grieve me to do that. That's too much trouble to do that. That's one of the reasons why the Financial Peace University is such a wonderful thing because it gives you tools to combine with a passion for Christ to become a person who's not governed by money, but a person who actually is able to give Things away. It's interesting in that light of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter uh, 4 about the thief. Let the thief, verse 28, no longer steal. You think he might just say, okay, stop stealing. But that's not where he ends it. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So to the thief, he says, stop taking money out of other people's pockets and you so work and labor that you're putting money into other people's pockets. You're, not, you're going so far from taking things from people, you are giving now to people. And historically, our confession would teach that you haven't really obeyed the seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal, until you begin giving your wealth away. So it's not just that, oh, I've never stolen or I don't steal or whatever. It's all the way around to the positive. Am I spending myself for others? Because Paul says, let the thief begin to earn and give his, his uh, earnings away for others. So there is the uh, idea of, of covetousness. There's this idea of sorrow and pain uh, that... Paul says we must not have. And then earlier in that same verse 7, he says, Each one must give as he's made up his mind. As he's made up his mind. And literally, this talks about drawing something, uh, goods from your stores. Like you've got, a, you're, you've got things stored up and you're pulling from those goods. Uh, that's the basic meaning of the word. Uh, we would put it like this, getting something out of your own pantry. Okay, so the idea in the analogy he's using is draw your decision out of the pantry of your own heart. Okay, let it be your choice. You don't need to be coerced. It's not the that preacher got to me. He's going to 
get to me, I'm, I'm just going to give, maybe he'll shut up, you know, that kind of idea. No, it's your decision as you've decided in your own heart or purposed in your own heart, as the New American Standard says. <clears throat> so you're not to feel sorry that you gave or feel forced to give. It's something that you've decided on your own initiative, as one translation has it. Which leads us finally just to mention this idea of, of joy. If there's no, uh, it's not covetousness, it's not this sorrow governing you, but your, your heart freely chooses and it does so joyfully because he says, God loves a cheerful giver. And bear in mind, we talked about this in the, uh, my Sunday school class a week or two ago, but the Trinity has been in a certain sense, it's called, some people would call it the great dance, but they're trying to give the idea of things not being static in the Trinity. That from all eternity, each person in the Trinity is moving toward the other one, giving himself away, could we put it that way, uh, entering into the life of the other and receiving the other. So there's this constant lo- motion of love, infinite joyful love that has been constant in the Trinity. That's just what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do. God is love before the world ever existed because there was a family in in God. There was relationship in God. And it was a relationship of movement and love and spending themselves freely and joyfully into each other's life. As the Son says in His prayer, you loved me before the world began. And that means before there ever was anything, the Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. And the Holy Spirit was bound up in that love. So you see, this this God of such love, when He works in our heart and He pours out His love into our heart, it must begin to show itself in every part of your life, in every part of my life. That's the encouragement The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. It says in Romans chapter 5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So He is the train that conveys that love into our lives. He establishes the beachhead of God's love in the human heart so that it begins to spring up and show itself in the way we do everything, including the way we deal with our wealth. It begins to look like God because it's the very love of God. And it's a love of infinite joy, of happiness. That's why Jesus, in talking about the greatest love anybody could have, is that you lay down your life for one another. In that context, in John 15, he says, uh, This is my new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And I've told you these things so that my joy would be in you and your joy would be full. Get all that connection. Here's love, laying down your life for someone. I want you to love one another as I have loved you so that you spend yourselves for each other and then you'll begin to know the fullness of joy. So what Jesus said, Paul reports it in Acts 20.35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do we even believe that? Do we really believe that? To say, I am not going to miss out 
on the richness of joy of being like God and like the Lord Jesus Christ. Save me, oh God, save me. And look, you and I, we have so many idols running around in our hearts. Let's admit it. Talk to God. Tell Him what's keeping you back. But don't stay there, okay? And look, it's not going to fatten my salary. You know, I know it's easy, especially. This is why Kay hates for me to talk about giving. You know, this is like being miserable for her. Because it seems so self-seeking. Even if I don't get a different salary, well, it's my organization, so to speak. You know, I'm the pastor of the church. I want you to give to my thing. You know, it's my church. But this is something between you and Jesus, obviously. That's what I, I, I really think. I, you know, I search my heart for motive. And I believe with all of my heart is if I know I can't be absolutely pure on this, but I desire for you to know the joy of being free from this world and spending yourself happily. And every single person in here, it's not, if you, if you did the figures on our church, it would not be, well, 20% are doing 80% of the giving. It'd be 100% are doing 100% of the giving. That's the, that's the way it looks. Because everybody here is experiencing joy in Christ and the liberty that Christ gives. That's what I desire for you. That's what this leadership, the elders and deacons desire for you. May God grant it. May you trust him to do so. Let us pray. Lord, our hearts are attached to so many things, so much allegiance where it doesn't belong, so much fear, so much unbelief, so much idolatry, so much enslavery. Lord, we have so many obstacles. Every one of us, Lord, must be saved to really to be touched by your grace, to be believe your grace, to believe in your goodness, to believe in your promises, to believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive, and to want to be like Christ in all of our lives. Lord, make this a church which every person prepares himself and herself. Whatever detailed preparations, whatever budget, going to Financial Peace University, whatever process, getting counsel for someone, paying off debts, getting things fixed so that there can be a life of of happy, free giving of wealth to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Lord, Make us to be those people like the Macedonians who count it the greatest privilege, who literally laugh all the way to the offering plate. Bless us, Lord, that we will be like you, for you are the God who delights in mercy. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. i
my Lord, my life, my light. Oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?